What is Canadian liberalism? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Graham Thompson. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragoni, your host, and today I'm speaking with Graham Thompson. Graham is an Ernest May postdoctoral fellow in history and policy in the Balfour Center's International Security Program and a visiting fellow with the Weatherhead Initiative on Global History. His current research is focused on history of empire and imperial expansion, Anglo-American liberalism and foreign policy, and ideas of the world order from 19th century to the present. Prior to his appointment at Harvard, Graham was a policy analyst and speechwriter in the Foreign Policy Planning Division at Global Affairs Canada, where he worked on strategic policy, Canada-U.S. relations, and democracy and human rights issues. He earned his Ph.D. in Global and Imperial History at St. Anthony's College, Oxford, and has held visiting academic positions at the Bill Graham Centre for Contemporary International History and Massey College, University of Toronto. Graham, welcome to The Curious Task. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you on. So, so Graham, we base each episode on a question and just go wherever the answers take us. Our question today is, what is Canadian liberalism? And I think the best way to go about this kind of question is just to jump right into exploring different concepts and do a bit of a historical tour, at least to start. So, I mean, of course, there's many places I can choose to start, but I'm just going to pick one era and go with it and, and we can go from there. So I'll put the pin down and we could start by saying... If I was to say I was a liberal in Canada in the late 1800s, early 1900s, what would I be meaning by that? Paint that picture for us. That's a great question. Um, and it's a, it's a place I'm really comfortable starting too. Um, I would say first and foremost, at that period of time, one of the major cleavages was um, over free trade. That there was an ongoing debate uh, within Canada about orienting our trade vis-a-vis uh, -vis the United States continentally and uh, with the British Empire. And Britain was the major um, source of settlers and capital, uh, major export market for Canada, but of course the United States is too. And, and the reason that's important in a way is because it goes to the whole notion of um, what it was to be Canadian and what, what future of this was there for this country. Uh, obviously, the natural trade routes in North America run north-south, and a country was being created that ran east-west, and where it was politically connected to a country that existed thousands of miles away across the ocean. And so the question of free trade, and it intersected with questions about Canadian nationality and Canada's role in the world, which really had not been been settled yet. So in a, in a certain way, that would be the, the major schism, I think, um, where on the liberal side, you were more comfortable with free trade and the north-south orientation of the economy. And on a more, at that time, conservative side, um, there was a more protectionist bent and a sort of nationalistic, imperialistic bent that, that stressed the connection with Britain and the need to impose protectionist barriers to protect that connection from what they saw as, as absorption into the United States. Um, so that leads into questions about um, the autonomy of, of Canada as a self-governing democracy, uh, North American integration. It's kind of the place where 
once the big questions about um, responsible government were solved in Canada, that the Canadian Parliament had the right to legislate in its own um, in its own realm without interference from the Imperial Parliament, that was kind of the big achievement of what became Canadian Liberals. They called themselves reformers, and the argument was in favor of um, what they called responsible government, i.e. that we have a government which is responsible to the people's representatives elected in Parliament and not to the governor appointed from London. Once that was established, the line of debate really hinged on trade and the how that affected the development of the country, the settlement of the West, and a whole bunch of things that are going on uh, at that period where, you know, Canada wasn't really a country. There were a lot of people saying, you know, this, this is an artificial construction. It will never survive. Um, and the natural trade links go north-south, and, and that's where destiny uh, will take it. So I kind of say that's where philosophically the argument over free trade is probably is probably the main uh, point of contention. Yeah, there's a lot there's a lot there and I think that's really awesome. I like the way you, you put that is that almost this this discussion around free trade is kind of like a, a vehicle which we can attach a lot of different questions about Canadian identity and so forth into as, as we understand th- this period. One thing that was interesting to me is when I was reading uh, a speech given by uh, Wilfrid Laurier in preparation for this podcast, um, uh, and, and we'll talk about him more in detail later, so we'll park him for a second. But one thing he said in the speech, which was very interesting to me, is that it was clear uh, this was him talking about his party's liberalism and what it meant to be a liberal. And um, and it w- was still interesting, though, to me, is that um, the way he seemed to understand it, or at least present it in that lecture speech he was giving, was that it was still a spectrum uh, within being a British subject. So even though there were reforms desired and and there were things about, you said, the North-South trade routes or whether there should be a tighter relationship with uh, still Britain rather than opening up with the United States, I think it's still key, especially for those American friends we have listening to this podcast now who might not be as familiar with this kind of stuff. A lot of this was still, as I said again, within the spectrum of being a British subject. There was no, at this time, mainstream political liberal thought that was basically saying, and we could throw off this monarchy. At least that's what I read off the whole thing uh, in my research. No, no, I think that's exactly right. Um, the Canadian liberal tradition going back, I mean, if you want to sort of pull back a little bit, the American Revolution creates two countries, right? It creates the United States and it creates not the United States, the remnant of British North America, which decided to remain attached to the empire and to be loyal. And from that, you get a Canadian political culture, which kind of abhors revolution and republicanism and radicalism of a certain type. And so everything is really framed within the context of of, um, the connection with Britain and the empire. And it ends up drawing a lot on British Whig traditions of thought. So Edmund Burke, for instance, or Adam Smith or David Hume, who really emphasized the importance of convention and tradition and social norms within which a free economy and free individuals um, function. There's, you have that on the, one, on, on the one hand to sort, of, to sort of park. And you also have this idea that you, know, you can't have either an, an ethnically based citizenship or a sort of Republican melting pot citizenship. 
because either of those ideas is is going to be destructive to the notion that you have a bicultural Anglo-French, and at that time, you know, they spoke in terms of Protestant, Catholic, and even quote unquote the uh, British and French races. So a melting pot is not going to work. Um, and you had to have, and, and, and an ethnically based nationalism is not going to work. So a civic, a liberal idea of nationalism, and certainly what Laurier was getting to, and we can, we can go to, to him in a little bit, but I think a liberal ideal of national identity was kind of essential for Canada to survive at all. If you're going to have a country where two peoples don't speak the same language, don't have the same religion, don't have the same culture, there is this emphasis on a, a, what I again would call a liberal nationalism. It derives a little bit from being a subject. The, the, the only basis that is really essential for defining the citizen is that you're a loyal subject of the monarch. You don't have to assimilate into an ethnic or a Republican ideal. And you, you still see that in Canada today that you know, the different parts from, from Ontario to Quebec to Newfoundland to, to British Columbia are so diverse and so disparate that the idea of uniting them into a single country in the late 19th century was, was actually surprisingly difficult. Um, and this notion of a liberal sense of citizenship was really foundational, I think, to, to the country. It wouldn't have survived otherwise in a lot of ways. Yeah, Laurie, talked about that too. And again, I, I keep teasing that, but I, I want to save him for a little bit later. But just to dig a deep, bit deeper into something you said there, can you drill a little further into this idea that people, there was this strong tendency, especially between French and English Canada at the time, to also then sort themselves, as you said, between this idea of the Protestant and Catholic thing. And it seemed that, you know, that's also how the political parties sorted themselves out, you know, um, the liberals were equated as being the Catholic party is when I understood at one point, and this is something Laurier tried to dispel. So can you get a bit more into that? Cause I think as Canadians, we're sort of used to that sort of form of plurality. You know, we have English Canada, French Canada, and all these other cultures and sort of norms as you go across the country, but let's dig a bit deeper into that divide around that late 1800, early 1900s time. Can you paint that picture a little further for us? What was going on with this Catholic Protestant French English thing? Absolutely. I mean, we still talk about the two solitudes, right? Um, French and English Canadians. And now we think of it primarily as a language issue. Mm -hmm. But in the late, in the late 19th century, that it was a, a sectarian religious issue. And it could very easily have been the case that the country would fracture along sectarian lines. And a lot of people pointed to Ireland and said, look, you know, if we have sectarian politics, identity politics in Canada based on a group identities, we're going to go down a very bad road and this, this country will never hold together. So A, it sort of invokes this idea of, of uh, the liberal tradition of toleration of difference and the importance of a, of a civic nationalism. But then, you know, it's, it's easy to dump on 19th century politicians now for all kinds of reasons. They held views, which in many cases we, we find abhorrent today, but, you know, coming at this as a historian, I think it's really important not to judge the past in your terms, but to judge it in its own terms. And what's really remarkable about that period of Canadian history is, is that it could have gone down this sectarian road and it didn't. And it didn't largely because of 
the political leadership and this sort of established, I mean, I would say even we've, we've sort of, uh, we've noted Laurier here, but even McDonald was a sort of small L liberal in a certain kind of way. And um, there was a recognition that you just don't have a country if you, if you base this polity on sectarian linguistic divides. And a good example of this is the election of 1891. And there's a great book uh, by, I hope I get his name, I think it's Christopher Pennington um, on the election of 1891. It makes the point that both Laurier and MacDonald really went out of their way not to play a sectarian card and to do everything that they could as political leaders um, to put together coalitions that were that were more broadly based, um, the Liberal Party subsequently wins its base in in Quebec and becomes sort of a, identified as a, as a bit of a Catholic party. But prior to that, you had these two kind of surprising alignments of of, of political parties. One being the McDonald Conservative Party, which is based, roughly speaking, you've got French Canadian Catholics who were very conservative at the time. You have Anglo Montreal business elites. You've got the sort of upper Canadian Anglican ruling class. And you've got some um, people living in the sort of Kingston, Ottawa region whose economic interests are more aligned in some ways with, with Quebec. And what's remarkable about that coalition is that somehow you get a situation where the clerics, the Catholic priesthood in Quebec is telling their voters, their, their, uh, their flocks to vote for MacDonald. And MacDonald is also winning votes from the most extreme Protestant elements in Ontario, the Orange Order. And so they're voting for MacDonald, which is shocking because in theory, you know, who do the, who do the, 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 the Orange Protestants hate more than the Catholics and vice versa. But there they are in a political coalition and the same is, is true of the liberals. Now, they were less successful for a few reasons we might get into. They brought together the sort of radical, more left-leaning, anti-clerical elements in Quebec alongside the sort of egalitarian rural elements of Ontario, where you know, if you went to Ontario in 1890, you had these very rural Methodist, Presbyterian, Protestant folks who would really have been uncomfortable with French Catholicism. And yet Laurier in particular manages to bring this unwieldy coalition together. So the two main parties end up being brokerage parties based on a sort of civic nationalism, a liberal nationalism, which cuts across the religious divide. And you don't have the development of sectarian politics, which as I say, really would have been the death knell of the country. Um, you don't have to go very far in places where ethnic nationalism and sectarianism has terrible consequences. And, um, you know, to give both MacDonald and Laurier their due, they, they did a hell of a lot to ensure that that, well, I want to be careful of the word ensure, but, you know, historians don't like to talk about inevitability, but they did everything they could to make sure that 
the conditions were such that that could be avoided in Canada. And it occurs to me too, especially as we're talking about the, you know, we're talking about different religions and like this broad coalitions, but when it comes down to it with Canada previously being, you know, filled with essentially um, the British empire and the French empire, you know, it's not like you have one ruling culture or religion and like a couple of people over there that can, that, that, uh, that, you know, that you can easily suppress. Like these were truly two, um, in their own right, um, large, powerful cultures, as you said, with different business interests across the board, the geography helped with that. So, so in a way, uh, a lot of these tensions that we look back upon, and I'm sure the people dealing with them at the time thought that these things were the end of the world. In retrospect, is it fair to say to some degree that it's in fact, those tensions, that as, that, as you said, sort of make Canada what it is today. And we'll get to the way things shape up later. But all that to say is that without the existence of these two large sets of interests, the French and English divide is one of them, the experiment that was Canada might not exist at all. I think it's, it's in fact, those tensions that make made the calm, if you will. I, I absolutely agree. I mean, um, you look at instances of nation building, say, in, in France, and it's very much about the sort of um, French elite turning the peasants into Frenchmen, as it were. Right. Um, you have a dominant center, which in Canada never held. And it's very hard to imagine the sort of tolerant, plural society that we have today, deriving from anything other than, um, you know, this. Uh, maybe I would put that in a slightly different way. It's not impossible to imagine, but it comes in some degree from this situation where you've created a state premised on the toleration of difference, that you're going to share a country and a government with people who are dislike you in a fundamental way. I think you, you can draw a pretty straight line from that to the kind of plural, tolerant, multicultural society that Canada has become. And obviously that's not to discount the ways in which that hasn't always lived up to the ideal or the ways that people were excluded in the past. Right. There's all sorts of examples. But again, you you go back to this Anglo-Protestant and French Catholic thing, and they truly, in some ways, hated each other. And to bring them together into a single country to tolerate these immense differences, what we're seeing as immense differences, I think laid the foundation for a kind of tolerant, plural, liberal society that was that was to come. It's hard to imagine that emerging uh, in the absence of, of what were, again, the, the two solitudes. When, when Lord Durham, and I have to premise a little bit, I didn't cut my teeth in Canadian history. I come, I come to this from a bit of a, another perspective, but we could, we could talk about that. Um, when Lord Durham came to Canada in, after the rebellions in 1837-38, one in, in Quebec, in Lower Canada, which was somewhat more serious than what happened in Upper Canada, but both were a, uh, a violent attack in some ways on the established order. And he very famously said, you know, we have two nations warring in the bosom of a single state. So how do you, under other circumstances, those two nations might reasonably have become two separate countries, but for all kinds of reasons, um, you know, in Durham's case, he, he, he suggested that, uh, A, the, the colonists should be allowed to govern themselves. Basically, they were correct. They were, they were being put upon by the governor. But his other recommendation that, that didn't get really acted upon was, was the idea that the French would ultimately be assimilated. And, and you don't have to know very much about Quebec nationalism today 
to know that it's fundamentally premised the idea that they won't be assimilated into English-speaking North America. So, right. yeah, no, I, I really think you you get this tolerant plural society out of these forcing together of these two very different communities and, and having them live in a single state together. And as I said, I, I, a little bit later in our chat, I do want to tour a little bit farther th- into history and look at some speed bumps along the way and how that sort of affected what we can call Canadian liberalism. But but let's finally unpack the thing I've been talking about for a little while. Let's shift gears for now into Wilfrid Laurier. Um, who was Wilfrid Laurier? Why is he important to this conversation? Because again, we're talking about what is Canadian liberalism. And obviously, just by talking about Wilfrid Laurier, I'm implying to our audience that you don't really have a form of Canadian liberalism or this discussion without the man himself. So it's a pretty big deal. So again, who was he? Why was he important? Paint that picture for us. So I came to study Laurier from the perspective of British imperial history. And I really returned to Canadian history from this perspective because I was I was doing some research during my master's and I realized, wow, this there's this huge debate about the future of the British Empire going on. And Wilfrid Laurier, who's on my five dollar bill, is this figure who keeps coming up. And he is the most important, arguably the most important politician in the British Empire who is not based in London. And so that's how I sort of returned to to Laurier, as it were. And so the long and the short of it is. Um, Laurier is a French Canadian born in um, what then is sort of what is now, I guess, we'd recognize as the Eastern Townships, more or less. Um, he went to university. Well, we'll step back a minute. French Canadian guy, Roman Catholic, obviously, in the, in this context. He learned English. He was sent away by his family to learn English in New Glasgow, Quebec. And this is important because of the two solitudes that we're talking about. So Laurier, for his entire life, was effortlessly bilingual. And it was said that he spoke English with a slight Scottish accent because of uh, where he learned when he was when he was a kid. And then he went to McGill, which in those days was a bastion of sort of Anglophone privilege in Montreal. And he studied law there. And so from a very early age, this was a man who, who bridged these two solitudes, who understood French Canada and who understood English-speaking Canada. And he eventually, um, he becomes well-known in Quebec through this, this speech in 1877, which I think you're alluding to. He's elected to the House of Commons. And still by sort of the 1880s, you know, he's known in Quebec. He's become a big figure. But in the rest of Canada, nobody really knows who this guy is what he's on about. And that period, um, Edward Blake was the leader of the Liberal Party. Up until Michael Ignatieff was the only Canadian uh, Liberal Party leader never to become Prime Minister. He retires and Laurier becomes the leader of the Liberal Party. And so I think what's remarkable about him, other than the Anglo-French thing, is that he was so steeped in British traditions of liberalism. And he read Burke and he idolized Gladstone. William Gladstone is somebody who I've been digging into a bit more recently. Uh, If you want to understand 19th century liberalism, you've got to go to Gladstone. Um, And Laurier then, the, the, the sort of story unfolds, he becomes prime minister. He's the first French Canadian prime minister in Canada. And he becomes one of the longest serving. And he, is the closest thing that Canada had 
arguably has had to a sort of classical liberal stroke libertarian uh, prime minister. He he cut his teeth really on, like we were talking initially, the question of free trade. He was a, a proponent of free trade, both with the United States and more broadly. Um, in those days, the Liberal Party was an advocate of decentralization and what was called provincial rights. Um, he valorized the sort of um, constitutional inheritance that Canada has um, from Britain, but also said, you know, actually, we've, our constitution's a bit better because we're also a federation like the Americans, so we have decentralization. Um, really becomes this hugely pivotal figure at a time when Canada is coalescing into a, into a country. Um, he presides over this great economic boom at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century. And, um, you know, twice in his career fights elections over the issue of free trade with the United States. And one of the last things that he does is, um, you know, he puts his reputation on the line to try to avoid something like a civil war over the issue of conscription in the First World War when Quebec does not want to have its sons conscripted to go fight and English Canada does. And so you really, that period before Laurier came to power, there's a, there's a real question about whether Canada as such survives as a country because of the diversity, because of the disparate nature of the place, you know, it, it it, it, the the different provinces just had nothing in common in a lot of ways. And Laurier came in and he he made it his mission in a way to take these disparate regions and to forge a nation. And some historians would say he picked up from Macdonald there. We can sort of leave that to the side, but that's his real legacy. He left Canada a hell of a lot richer and in some ways you know, First World War side, more united than than when he found it. And he presided over the expansion into the West. So the West becomes uh, an integral part of the Dominion. And he really made the argument, A, for free trade, B, for the autonomy of Canada within the British Empire, that Canada should have the right and ability and confidence to govern its own affairs, to have its own international personality, and yet to remain in, in connection with the empire. So at that period, when these are really live debates, uh, he's a pretty amazing figure. And, and when he becomes leader of the Liberal Party and he goes into Southwestern Ontario and talks to these rural Protestant farmers, amazingly, after you know going to bat for them on issues like free trade that they cared about and provincial rights that they cared about, they had his back all the way. And it's one of these amazing examples of, again, this theme of, of bridging the divide between the French and the English if this country is going to exist. And it took a figure like Laurier to do that in practice. And he truly, he truly believed that if you didn't have a liberal, civic conception of nationality, that if you played the sectarian game, that that would go into very dark places. And so... You know, he's arguably the, the figure who, on the one hand, is both, you know, the, what we would recognize um, as, as the most sort of classically liberal in a philosophical sense, but he welded the country together 
in a way that uh, that has endured despite despite many things. And actually, that, that is an excellent place to take our break. So we will do so right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Graham Thompson today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustaskatliberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Christopher McDonald, Daniel Beer, and Danny Leroy. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Graham Thompson today. So, Graham, we just finished off right before the break our bit of a tour of uh, a bit of a tour of Laurier. We did a bigger tour on Canadian liberalism at that time in the late 1800s, uh, early 1900s. I just want to tie off that part of the conversation by saying I, I was watching this this fun video about a week ago or so about Laurier himself, actually, and incidentally, and some Canadian YouTuber actually, which means he doesn't have millions of views, but enough. Um, was talking about Wilfred Laurier and some of the same things we're talking about here, but he brought up something that uh that i wanted to i think it sounds like a convincing claim but i want to kind of tie off what we we're talking about and basically check that claim with you which is basically the fact that he said that this laurier himself not only was a figure and a great figure in canadian liberalism but that he sort of also was the first if, if not then one of the first people to show the politicians of the future the right sort of template if you will of what you you kind of need to have as your stuff if you want to be prime minister of canada and he kind of listed the idea that look like just by by both nature and nurture he had okay on the one hand he's he's a french person who studied in the anglosphere and as you said and has a respectable english background and english society and english education and can come to the forefront of everybody and say look i understand canada as a whole I understand this whole British thing and British education thing, but also my background, you know, I can represent, you know, the true feelings of my French countrymen. And this guy was basically arguing that it, it's this sort of formula that proves to be the successful formula for every prime minister moving forward in the liberal tradition in Canada. Does, does that claim hold water? Does that kind of make sense to you? I, I think it does. Um, the alternative, which is less common now, but I think you still see it in some ways, was was to have a... Uh, American listeners will will hear me say lieutenant and not lieutenant, but you would have a lieutenant if you were an English-speaking politician like McDonald. You had your deputy, who in his case was Cartier, uh, George Etienne Cartier. It sort of runs the show in Quebec, and and vice versa in in some ways. Um, later on, you have Louis Saint Laurent, um, who is a Quebec politician, and he's. Uh, got somebody in in the English speaking provinces to to sort of run his show. Um, Mackenzie King is a famous example of this. Had Ernest Lapointe in Quebec. Laurier shows. There's a biography, actually. I should say that um, called Laurier the first Canadian. And this is kind of a bit of a facile thing for, you know, from my point of view. But I can see what it's getting at because he was truly bilingual. He did understand as much as one can these two cultures. And um, I know just from my own experience of learning French quite late in life, 
that it does open an entire new, it's not just about speaking the language. All of a sudden you're watching Radio Canada and, and you, it, it really opens a cultural door, um, which is very hard to open as, as a unilingual Anglophone. And um, Laurier understood both sides of the country and really was able to fight on principle on a bunch of issues. He, he was unafraid in, in a number of cases to lose on an issue that he thought was worth fighting for. And maybe some of our modern politicians could, could take a note from that. But uh, he really does, he carves out this, this vision of a, of a statesman who's an Anglo-French kind of bridge, who has a vision of what Canada means as a country, what its strengths are, what its values are, what it can represent and, and do internationally. And, you know, if I'm, I'm today, I would, I would want them to be on the Laurier model, to, to speak to all parts of the country in the same tone of voice and not say one thing in one place and one thing somewhere else. And to, to really have a bunch of, to really have principles that they fought for and were worth losing on actually as opposed to just sort of cynically hanging on to power so he's a really powerful figure and, and in a lot of ways canadian liberalism has to my view sort of unfortunately moved on from laurier i wrote a piece a couple of years ago on um what happened to laurier and i looked at the political parties and i said i don't think this guy has a home anymore so um he's it's uh, really striking figure that I don't think, uh, and this is a broader point, but I, you know, I don't think Canadians know very much about their history. They've been taught that it's boring. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And in a certain way it is, it is taught in a boring way. And that's kind of why I came back to it was because I went out and I was studying international relations and imperial history and the history of political thought. And then I discovered that actually there's a totally different way of looking at this history from the outside in, um, which puts it in the context of American history and British history and French history and the great wars of the 20th century. And all of a sudden, Canada's not not so silly anymore. So uh, anyway, that's it's just a bit of a tangent, but I think Laurier is my is my gateway drug, if you will, uh, into, into looking at Canada in a slightly different way. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I'll just basically com completely inter interject myself here just to, to echo something you said there too. I think absolutely you're right that a lot of the times in Canada, um, for whatever the case may be, some people jokingly just refer to our, you know, say sorry, be humble mentality. But what, for whatever the reason, you're absolutely right. It's often taught and is often perceived as sort of this just boring kind of culmination of events that eventually led to a, a pretty decent country. Eh? But uh, <laughs> but other than that, um, I, th I think it's very important for whether there's Canadian listeners listening, American or, or outside. I would definitely encourage people to take a, a deeper look into lots of things that are happening there because I absolutely believe it's, it's more interesting than some people will stereotype it as. So I, I can't agree with that more, uh, Graham. That's absolutely true. I want to move ahead a little bit in history, but not too far ahead from Laurier just for just a second because I want to talk about sort of the end of this, if you will, great Laurier liberal era. We, we painted, as I said, a very good picture of what Canadian liberalism meant at that time, how Laurier was so deeply embedded into it and basically was the culmination of that Canadian liberalism. How did how did this great Laurier and one of the great eras of Canadian uppercase L liberalism end? What, what came what came to a head here? Well, that's, again, where coming at it from an outside point of view is, I think, really helpful. Um, 
because in the just to step back slightly, Laurier kind of ends up he forges together these two strands of Canadian liberalism, the sort of um, Quebec Rouge, radical Rouge sort of liberalism, um, and the Ontario. What, some of uh, some of the listeners from Toronto will know George Brown's name because of George Brown College or something like that. George Brown was the great leader of the Upper Canadian Liberals and the editor of the Toronto Globe, and a real radical in an almost Jeffersonian, Jacksonian kind of thing. His his followers were the rural farmers, um, and that's where you know you can you can point to um, aspects of. Uh, of Western Canadian politics that have their origins actually in, in Upper Canada, but Laurier brings these things together. And by the end of the 19th century, you have urbanization, you have industrialization, and in Britain and the United States, you have a growing movements uh, toward quote unquote progressivism. And this is Liberalism became rebranded in part because of the, the concerns over the role of working people in industrial urban societies and problems which it was perceived that old-fashioned liberalism was either unwilling or unable to solve. And the same thing happened in, in Britain, where a new generation came through the British Liberal Party that had a lot more in common in some ways with the emerging Labour Party. And in Canada, you see this transitional period when Laurier is getting quite old, it's maybe the First World War, and someone like Mackenzie King is starting to rise. And Mackenzie King has a very different vision of the role of the state in society and in the economy, where Laurier and old-fashioned liberalism was much more laissez-faire, much more individualistic. Mackenzie King and, and others of his generation had much more activist vision of of the government the the idea of what building a nation meant shifted along with the what the liberals were doing as well yes you you it's the time when you begin to see moving toward the second world war the 50s and particularly the 60s the growth of the central government yes in canadian life and and in economic life and just a more interventionist type of liberalism if you go to you know, Isaiah Berlin famously talks about negative and positive liberty. It's kind of a rough way of thinking about this. You have a turn to positive notions of liberty and apparent across the Western world, a sort of more interventionist um, state. And in some ways, it, I think it's very helpful to distinguish between these two. I think liberalism historically was associated with the Gladstone, Laurier, you know, Richard Cobden is a name that comes to mind, an, a, an avatar of free trade and small government. It kind of comes down from Adam Smith and David Hume in some ways. And by the middle of the 20th century, you've got a very different thing going on under the name of liberalism, but which is more activist, which has a bigger role for central government, which is uh, developing a bureaucratic state, which I don't think 19th century liberals would have recognized or supported. But in the 20th century, this went under the name of liberalism. And they did a bit of a sleight of hand, because I think if you, 
it's now coming back that that um, this sort of part of the political spectrum is referring to itself as progressive. And at that time, I think it makes sense to distinguish between liberals or maybe classical liberals and what were branded as new liberals or progressives. And in the 20th century, in a lot of ways, you know, uh, in Canada, the the civil rights culture um, represented in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, you can really see that as a as as a classical liberal idea. But the role of the state in the economy and in society had changed utterly. Um, so you have this total sort of rebranding intellectually and politically of of what is meant as liberalism, which then brings you to the 1980s and you have neoliberalism. And so you you've got these strands that are that are responding to different problems in society, changing um, social, uh, the changing social order in the 20th century. And, um, you know, old fashioned liberalism, in some ways it kind of comes back with, with Mrs. Thatcher, but it's not quite the same. Um, I, if I, if I could make one plug, I would say, you know, and this maybe brings us a little bit into the, into the present is, you know, in the 1980s, you could see why something like the Thatcher revolution was was required in a lot of ways. You've got, you know, a stagnating economy and, and in the UK, you know, three day work week and rubbish in the streets and and you needed an economic transformation. But what kind of came along with that was a sort of atomization of society. And we're now living in this period where people wonder, well, what is the future of liberalism? Where, how can it respond to the problems of today? Isn't it, you know, isn't there more to life than just pure, unadulterated individualism and self-interest and selfishness? And I would argue that if you go back to the foundations, so you go back to the tradition of classical liberalism, yes, it's an individualistic idea and a laissez-faire idea. But if you read William Gladstone, if you read Adam Smith, John Stuart Mill, absolutely. Yeah, you go beyond, you know, certainly the wealth of nations. Well, there's there's the theory of moral sentiment. The, you go back to Edmund Burke, who's often thought of as a conservative, but really was was a liberal by the, uh, in, 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 a, in so many different ways. Um, they had a notion of liberalism, which was rooted in society and individuals who are rooted in society who had institutions and norms and conventions and social relationships that grounded them and gave them meaning and, and, and imbued them with morality. And, you know, the, the caricature of old fashioned liberalism is kind of like, you know, the, the, the 12 year old chimney sweep or something. Um, but I just I just don't think that's the case, and and someone like Laurier um, is a good way into that. But uh, you know, old-fashioned liberalism was not just a sort of atomistic ideology in any way. It was it was very much rooted in the traditions of society and and social relationships. And I think you know the the quote-unquote neoliberal recent past kind of got away from a lot of that. And if liberalism is going to have a bit more of a future. Um, it would be good to recover some of the ways in which, yes, the market is, in, is, is, is a central institution. Yes, individual rights and autonomy are 
paramount. You know, the individual is the moral unit. But, but there, there are responsibilities, there is morality, there is uh, a broader social and cultural um, environment in which people exist and interact and give, them, and give them meaning. And I think old fashioned liberalism has that in spades, but uh, it, it's kind of been lost more recently. That's a bit of a long-winded, you know, what has what has happened to liberalism in the 20th century, but I hope it gets to something that, that you were asking. No, for sure it does. And I think it's, it's also interesting to note that, you know, not only does, does that apply to sort of what happened in many areas of, quote, the West, but also Canada was along for that ride, as you said, right? I completely agree with what you're saying that um, there is sort of this, especially with the, quote, neoliberal era, if you, we want to call it that for this conversation, um, you know, creating in many people's minds this sort of, as you said, uh, caricature, at least skimming some of the... The, some of the cream, if you will, on certain aspects of liberalism, but but as we move forward in that 70s, 80s, 90s point, a point in time, especially because it's defined by the Cold War and the, the quote, warring systems of, uh, of, you know, production effectively, a lot of the conversation starts centering around economic production, capitalism, and that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. you're absolutely right that a lot of the, the grand liberal tradition or Laurier liberalism, to tie it back, is, is sort of lost in a lot of our understanding of what liberalism uh, was in the 70s, 80s, 90s. And of course, moving forward, that's a challenge for liberals as well. Um, I want to actually tie another Canadian thought right to that though which is which is here's here's the interesting part so as you get sort of the pure trudeau if you will as a as a contrast to uh to, to wilfred laurier and anyone who's not familiar with pure trudeau just quickly wiki him he has a very long wikipedia page because he's recognized for better or for worse as a quintessential liberal of that time liberal prime minister um it's interesting to me at least and perhaps you could help me out and tease this out a little further that you have as we were just describing, a Wilfrid Laurier, someone who is French and English background, familiar with board policy of the country, is a unifying sort of force. And then you have like a Pierre Trudeau, who, at least from what I understand, is is one of the first, if not the first, prime ministers to really start doubling down on, on the uh, st- stronger federal centralized sense of government identity which then lays the pathway for, and now I'm coming to my point, listen to that context, which then lays the pathway for the Liberal Party, in contrast with the Wilfrid Laurier era, is not recognized as the unifying party with cosmopolitan men and women that have English and French backgrounds as their backgrounds. The Liberal Party starts to become known, for one example, as a party that doesn't understand anything that's going on in the West. And here you have different undercurrents start happening in the conservative party so so I'll, I'll i'll let you take it from here but as i start that thought is, is that more or less correct right you start having this this big shift in what it means for canadian liberalism to be especially in in uh, reference to this idea of a unifying force you actually get a lot of different kind of tensions building they're not looked at as such anymore yeah no there's a lot there that i think is correct um some of those tensions are, are almost built in it goes back to the beginning of the conversation the the disparate nature of of Canada and and trying to appeal to all the different regions uh, in something more than a log rolling sort of corrupt way is is tough. Um, but it does, yeah. The, the the a great compare and contrast of Canadian liberalism is Laurier and Trudeau, and their economic visions are very different. But what they what they represented in a certain way is, is very different too because. While on the surface it looks like you know you've got this Anglo-French thing, Trudeau was was effortlessly bilingual himself. The Liberal Party in Laurier's day had its strength in 
more or less three places. Um, Quebec outside of Montreal. Once Laurier became the leader, that is, the Liberal Party prior to Laurier was very weak in Quebec. Um, but once Laurier's leader, let's say to pick a day, let's say 1905, you know, just a bit randomly. Outside of Montreal in Quebec is the Liberal Party base. Suburban and rural Ontario. So in those days, Toronto was Tory Toronto. And uh, the Tory party, the Conservatives won in, in the urban centers. And the Liberals won in the rural, agrarian, and, and to some degree, suburban centers. And as the West developed, it developed along those rural Ontarian lines. And Laurier's Liberal Party tended to sweep the prairies which is an amazing thing to think about today, the Liberal Party sweeping the prairies, but it's true. <laughs> so somehow he built this coalition that brought in the West and rural Ontario and Quebec. And it strikes me in a way that that's actually, there are two keys to governing in Canada. You either win the cities, which is what the current government has done. Um, you rack up enough seats in urban Ontario and urban Quebec and then, in, you know, a few elsewhere, Vancouver, downtown Vancouver, and you've got enough more or less to govern. Right. For, for those and, who are unfamiliar that might be listening because of the proportional representation of the seats in parliament, if you get ghost cities, you pretty much get enough seats to be the ruling party. Yeah. You just need to win, you know, 50 plus one in all these, in some constituencies. And there's a few ways to put the jigsaw together. The other part, the other way to win, and it's a bit more of the Stephen Harper coalition, is the West rural Ontario and the Quebec regions. And if they can combine in the right numbers, then you can overwhelm uh, the urban centers. And weirdly, the parties have kind of shifted. Laurier's Liberal Party used to win places outside of the big cities. So that's, that's one thing. And the second thing is that while that held, it's fantastic for national unity. This is Canada's, you know, real problem. It's a bit of an unstable coalition in some ways. Um, but Laurier, to the end, you know, in 1917, um, this is the most divided Canada's ever been. It's middle of the, almost the end, the worst, the depths of the First World War. There's a vicious debate over imposing conscription for overseas service. And Quebec votes almost entirely as a mass for Laurier, opposing mandatory conscription. And the rest, the entire of English Canada votes as a block in some ways for the Conservatives and for conscription. But if you drill down a little further, the places that Laurier won are still those rural Western districts in Alberta, in Saskatchewan, in Western Ontario, you know, around London or, or Kitchener, Waterloo, in the rural areas. And so what always I find inspiring about Laurier in some ways and the potential for, for that kind of coalition is that you had a liberal party that could win in Quebec, but also could appeal to the sort of upper Canadian or, or Western uh, Western Canadian voter in a way that, you know, from Pierre Trudeau has been, has been very difficult. You know, you just bring up the, uh, 
the energy issues of the 1980s and Western Canadians will have a conniption. And, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a great compare contrast. Their, their visions of the country were in many ways quite different. And it's, 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 it's something, it says something about the sort of evolving, malleable nature of political parties. The, 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 the same party with the label, the, the label hasn't changed. Exactly. Yeah. But the contents, the contents have changed quite a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I have actually this. It's really cool. Actually, it's this really old issue of McLean's magazine. And I was really happy. I just read it when I was like, somewhere in my teens just because it was there my dad had it and one story i found very fascinating is how a lot of the pierre trudeau cabinet and that era truly represented that shift so so well like i think um and this is really getting into the nerdy canadian stuff but i think at one point john turner was a member of his cabinet and uh and and basically there was this story especially with trudeau with his progressive ideas and strong central government there's a bit of that government planning the economy stuff going on there and one of their splits was basically at least according to this feature article i read was Pierre Trudeau was like, I want to try wage and price controls, right? That's one example of the mentality that shift shifted. And John Turner said, well, we're not going to do that. Or basically, I'm out of here kind of thing. And it just shows that sort of, uh, if I remember correctly, you know, Turner was like the older sort of liberal school to some degree at that time to uh, to Pierre Trudeau's sort of new age, we're doing this prime ministership kind of approach, at least in terms of mentality. I think there's something to that. And if you contrast Laurier's cabinet, at least in his first one, so 1896, he wins the election and he assembles a sort of cabinet of, of what the Brits would call big beasts. Um, so he's got W.S. Fielding, who is a major liberal from Nova Scotia. He's got Oliver Mowat, who is the granddaddy of Ontario liberalism, had the long serving premier of Ontario joined the cabinet. He's got Clifford Sifton from the West um, who comes in and what, that represents in a way is first you've got a french canadian leader who has on side these major figures of regional liberalism in canada um, but also they were all staunch defenders of provincial rights and provincial autonomy and the limits that should be placed on the federal government and so i think that's a really great uh way to contrast the the current um, view of Canadian liberalism and, and liberalism in a lot of other ways, which is of a lot of other places, which is, again, I, I, why you go back to this, um, the question about the term liberalism, because it sounds like we're talking about the same thing, but we're just not. Because those who go by liberal today are very comfortable with fairly centralized um, Ottawa knows best type of governance. And, and in the old days, even into the Mackenzie King days, the liberals were the party of provincial rights and provincial autonomy. And that was how they thought that Canada could be held together was actually, if you tried to do everything from Ottawa, you're just going to infuriate people in the regions. And instead, it's better to allow them to run their own life. The old liberal principle of decentralization, that that sort of um, the, the, the level of government closest to the people is going to be the most effective and the most responsive. And that's the principle of, um, of a decentralized country. And that was the principle of, of the Laurier Liberal Party. And 
it was very clear that that changed during the 20th century. And as we've touched on a couple of times this conversation, one of the problems we have with this sort of labeling and terminology issue is like at least, you know, in in the states, although Democrat and Republican might have meant something a little more literal at the time, it sort of evolved. People still attach progressive, liberal, et cetera, on the Democrat Party, conservative, whatever else on the Republican Party. But in Canada, we have this this label situation where we have at least for the modern context, a little bit more of a direct labeling system. We have the Liberal Party, then we have the Conservative Party, and there was even that Progressive Conservative Party at, at one given time, too. So as you said, it sounds like we're talking the same thing, but we're not. That's one little Canadian problem, right? You have the Liberal Party of 1898, and then you have the, the Liberal Party of, uh, let's pick, 1974, and we're looking at very different things. Very different things. And so it's a good insight, it's a good um, view into the evolution of political thought in the 20th century and how how this sort of set of ideas could be you know the, while the label on the bottle stays the same the contents have have changed uh, very significantly and now if you want to look for classical liberal ideas in the canadian political system you're more likely to find them in the conservative party some elements of it um, there's still that heritage in the liberal party for some liberals but i i think it's 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 harder to make that case and you know maybe one or two even ndpers or greens you you could you could say okay because it's it's hard you know when we talk about liberalism on, on a basic level you know we can kind of mean the rule of law and parliamentary democracy and basic sort of liberal democratic values right which most people on the you know, at least the, the, the mainstream political spectrum kind of share. But when you get deeper into, okay, well, you know, what do you mean by, by, by liberal? And you start talking about free trade and decentralization and uh, the role of the market. And, you know, maybe internationally, you, you're not that comfortable with um, bureaucratic institutions generally at home or abroad. Then you start to see the, you know, where, where the differences lie. And, um, you know, it's very hard. If you wanted to put your check next to a classical liberal party in Canada, it's, it's not an easy one. I think maybe the conservatives would take it on some grounds, but then there are other other elements of the party which are, which are not that liberal uh, in different ways. But um, yeah, yeah, no, it's for sure. And we're also currently sort of in the mid, along with the rest of the world, in mid in the middle of what you can term as as a sort of political realignment as to what exactly the conservative quote-unquote, and liberal, quote-unquote, basis in any country re- really means and what that formulates to be. So we're sort of living that 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 shift as well, which, which is quite interesting. Um, you, I look at the clock and I have to say our, our time has, has wound down here, and I think this has been a very interesting conversation. But of course, in each episode, I want to make sure the guest has the last word. So I'm, I'm going to get to that so you can tie off our thoughts today and bring the conversation full circle and, and put a finer point on our explanation of the question. So let me ask you, in all of what we talked about, what what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on what Canadian liberalism is and also what it was? I think Canadian liberalism well reflects both the promise of the liberal ideal and its pathologies in some ways. Um, you know, we have we step back a little bit. You know, we've created one of the great liberal societies, one of the great societies in the history of the world, right? I come at this again as a global and imperial historian at the end of the day, and for all of our problems, 
what, what society in the grand scheme of things has been more welcoming, more tolerant, more observant of the rule of law, wealthier, um, more just, like on a lot of objective measures, this is, this is a success. And there's no way that I would want to downplay the success of the Canadian liberal ideal. Um, it really is, it really is something we don't, Canadians are too humble. We don't talk about this enough. Like our Canada, our, our country of Canada is pretty awesome. And it should be said. However, and the pathologies start to emerge here. Um, do we have as robust a liberal alternative or debate as we might have these days? Um, when you look at issues like the role of, of the government and its support for particular favored institutions or, or, or companies, you know, this is a thread that goes back to the railways in late 19th century Canada and the monopolies that they had and the corruption that derived from those monopolies. And you look at some of the big telecom interests in Canada or our lack of competitiveness uh, in, aero, in um, passenger, in passenger uh, flight, you know, you, you, we don't have a lot of alternatives. You look at something like supply management in in dairy and milk um and then you look at the decline of our institutions and the bureaucratization of of canadian society you look at the concentration of power among a number of unelected people and, and in the prime minister's office at the expense of parliament you know laurier would have a fit you, the prime minister you know, patrice dutil at, uh, at ryerson has written a very good book on prime ministerial power during this period and, and i don't want to pretend that you know the prime minister in, in canada's system hasn't always exercised a great degree of power but if you look at the concentrations of power social and economic and political in our country and you look at the prevailing economic system which seems to favor large companies, holders of wealth in so many ways, and where is it held accountable? How are the parliamentarians doing? Who's standing up for the little guy? Um, which is, at the end of the day, what liberalism had always been about. So, you know, I say that the, the achievements and the pathologies are, are well on display and, and looking at somebody like Laurier and the history of Canadian liberalism and where it comes from, I hope, can give us a language to say, to critique and propose alternatives for where we are at the moment. And, um, you know, that's what I, that's what I try to, that's what I'm trying to be engaged in. I'm, I'm in this sort of field of thinking about history in a context of how it can be applied to contemporary policy issues. And, and I think that that's something that a historical look at liberalism can help us to rediscover its roots in order to respond to new challenges. And, you know, if we're lucky, maybe deal with some of those pathologies. I think that's an excellent place to end our episode today. So Graham Thompson, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. 
The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.